Welcome back to the Host Dispatch. After taking a brief hiatus, we are so thrilled to be back with a new episode. I am your co-host, Claire Bowman, and Anar and I are especially excited to share this incredible conversation with the Fall 2021 Host Publications Chapbook Prize winner, Sequoia Maynard. Sequoia is an assistant professor of African-American literature at Spelman College. She is a co-editor of the critical creative book Revisiting the Elegy in the Black Lives Matter era, and she is at work on a forthcoming book regarding Kendrick Lamar's album To Pimp a Butterfly for the 33 and a third series from Bloomsbury. Her writing has been published in Auburn Avenue, The Feminist Wire, Meridian's, Obsidian, the Langston Hughes Review, and elsewhere. In this conversation with Sequoia, we just sat back and let her expound on so many thought-provoking topics with a really wide range, including the importance of interiority for the life of a poet and for little blue girls everywhere, the life of Harriet Jacobs and honoring one's lineage, the music of Tupac and Prince, and so much more. So buckle up and enjoy this beautiful ride with poet, scholar, and all-around badass Sequoia Maynard. And as always, thanks for listening. Hi, Anar. Hi, Claire. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, welcome. We are so excited to talk to you today about Little Girl Blue poems. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So I'm sure if you are listening to this podcast, you already know that Sequoia Maynard's Little Girl Blue poems won the Fall 2021 Host Publications Chapbook Prize. And we could not just be more grateful and more excited and more proud of this collection and just Sequoia in general. Agreed. Um, How about that cover, though? Mm. What are our thoughts? We've gone through this whole journey where Anar made a ridiculous number of (laughs) mock-ups. Anar, you made like 50 mock-ups, right? My gosh. Yeah, that's maybe on the low side. Yeah. They were all gorgeous. They were all exquisite. They really were. And we just inundated you with all of them at once <laughs> and somehow landed on what I think is the perfect design. Yeah. Um, but how are, how are you feeling about it, Sequoia, now that it's actually coming into print? I, I have to say, working with host publications, just let me take a step back. These poems have existed um, for some time. I performed them publicly for many years around Austin, Texas, and I came to a point where I had moved away from Austin to start a new job in Atlanta, and I really wanted to close the chapter, and it seemed like a chapbook was ready. And when I came to host, uh, Monica actually sent me here, Monica Teresa Ortiz, who was one of your uh, chapbook winners a couple of years ago. And she said, you have to work with these two ladies. You have to work with the small press. And this process, what you know, started as poems has become a collection that is so beautiful, that is singing, that is beyond 
what I ever thought that it could be. And it's the collaboration with you two. And I'm just so grateful to you. So thank you so much. The cover, the cover is exquisite. <laughs> the cover is amazing. You know, I, I gave Anar just like the slimmest notes. Mm-hmm. I said my aesthetic, you know, I want it, I want it to feel like Gwendolyn Brooks, Gwendolyn Brooks. And I think that her, her books are so iconic when we mm-hmm. think about her, you know, I think about Riot or In the Mecca or mm-hmm. Bronze and those covers, you know, they're textually based. Um, they have deep, rich colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a kind of like timeless mm-hmm. feel. And Anar just created a cover that was, it's, I mean, it's pretty, it's elegant, <laughs> it's classic, it's vintage, but it also captures, you know, I think that my poems are dark. I think that mm-hmm. there's a kind of sadness there. I think that I'm thinking about tragedy, but also I think that my poems have a sense of growth and blossoming and um working through loss and death and grief to get to a place that is brighter to get to a place that you know perhaps there's a little bit more hope or a little bit more survivability and for me this cover captures all of that all of that like i think about the silhouette of the flowers on the cover and for me, in that kind of silhouetted image, I don't know, it captures both death and liveliness, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. I'm Absolutely. just obsessed with this cover. <laughs> obsessed with it. Me too. Oh my gosh. Yes. I I mean, oftentimes making a cover, it's hard. It's hard work to make a cover that really works with the work inside of the book and that it complements um, the poems. And I just remember like when it clicked, when I finally, you know, with house publications, we start working on the cover when the poems are officially done because I have enough time to sit with them and understand them and just really let all of it sink in. I listened, you know, this is such a musical book. Um, I listened to some of the songs, um, some of the artists that you refer to. Um, I went to Waterloo Records. I got Little Girl Blue on vinyl. I love Um, that. The Nina Simone, right? Yes. And now I'm like such a Nina Simone. Like I'm obsessed. Um, I've done my job. My work is done. (laughs) Yeah. And when I started to get to work, it just exploded out of me. I just was so inspired by you as a person, you as a poet, um, the way that your work looks on the page, um, the way that it sits in the body when you're done with a poem and you can't stop thinking about your work. And yeah, and then you gave me some great direction. Um, I started looking at some of the older Black poets that published work, you know, And I could tell that you were definitely pulling from that Black arts era, right? Mm -hmm. You started coming back. Like, I was like, oh, she hit it on the head because the covers, to me, evoked jazz and Mm -hmm. spoken word and Black power, that kind of um, a very distinctive aesthetic that comes from that era. But Sequoia, you're just, your spirit just like who you are, you're like so Art Deco and you're so, you're so expensive. And like, (laughs) you know, I think of like, you need to have your portraits taken and they need to be in like 
a really just like classic hotel with like a huge chandelier. <laughs> Everything's like burgundy and forest green. Forest green and velvety and yes. rich and textured, right? Absolutely. Oh, and that's and just who you are. Well. That's who you are. <laughs> yeah. And then once I got to know who you were and your poems, it all just kind of came together. And the cover is just the beginning. <sighs> It's just the beginning of this book and the very end. <laughs> There's a whole book inside that cover. I want to mention, because as you were talking, it reminded me, um, you know, the title Little Girl Blue. I was foremost thinking of um, Nina Simone's cover, but that's a standard song that was written in the mid thirties. And so many amazing artists that I love have covered it, especially mm -hmm. from the African-American tradition. I think about uh, Sarah Vaughn and... Mm -hmm. Ella Fitzgerald and Diana Ross and Nancy mm -hmm. Wilson and Louis Armstrong, but also there's an amazing rendition that um, Karen Carpenter does, The Carpenters, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And Janis Joplin has a version. And, and it's the standard that gets taken up and redone and redefined for a new era. So in many ways with this little girl blue, I was thinking about writing myself into a tradition, a tradition yes. that's musical, but a tradition that's also poetic. So June Jordan has an phenomenal poem, right? Uh, that's dedicated to Little Girl Blue. It's called Poem for One Little Girl Blue. And so, yeah, this, this, can I tell you about Little Girl Blue? Uh, she's this, she started haunting me during the pandemic. I found myself stifled during the mm -hmm. pandemic. I wasn't writing much. I was reading a ton, taking in a ton but not writing poetry. And when I did start writing, it was the sing-song little nursery rhymes that on the surface seemed very sweet, but underneath there was something very dark going on. And I kept, I don't know, Little Girl Blue was who I was writing to. And she was this figure who, you know, this little Black girl who had a lot of questions about the world and was thinking about how she would use her brilliance, how she could protect her brilliance in a really sort of devastating and destructive time, right? When the world is kind of on fire around her. Um, and I was listening to a lot of Nina Simone. I'm so curious, Sequoia, when, and maybe this, it was so subconscious or so in the craft or the sort of magic of making a poem that this isn't even a relevant question. But I'm just curious if you were thinking about the figure of Little Girl Blue as a kind of like ethereal spirit, muse, kind of an idea, or was she like connected to your heart, like a past version of yourself? Or like a child in the world that you could teach and speak to and nurture and guide. I'm just trying to, like, all those things are coming head. to mind. You hit it on the head. Little Girl Blue for me was not a muse, but was this kind of uh, tangible figure that I could see. A silhouetted Black girl with Afro puffs <laughs> who, <laughs> as I started to do more thinking about it, I realized was my younger self. I think that Little Girl Blue is me speaking to my younger self saying, hey, look what you've done. Look yeah. what you have accomplished. Mm -hmm. Look how you've, you've gotten here. You, you never even imagined yourself here. Like life is possible. Life is possible. And 
Yeah, speaking to my younger self, but also thinking about, I don't know, the kind of multitude of Black girls whose names I don't know, but who I'm highly invested in, who I hope might find something in these poems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is beautiful. I feel that in especially the 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 second little girl blue poem the interlude poem it's like a self-parenting poem that is so it's so compelling i wish i had a better word to use <laughs> like it, it like hooks your heart and pulls it forward you know um because I don't think that most of us are taught that we're allowed to reparent ourselves or know how to even begin doing that. And Mm -hmm. then to see it like happening for someone in a poem is just like this beautiful synthesis of care and love and pain and poetry. (laughs) Can I read that poem? Yes. I was about to ask, please, please read us this poem. Um, It's called Hush Little Blue Girl Interlude. Hush, little blue girl, don't say nary a thing. You know how to conserve energy for spring. Mamas live through freeze that chokes bloom, taught you to build an interior room just for you. A sovereign space outside of time, a direct conduit to the sublime, the unruly and unconfined, designed and divined with only you in mind. Oh my, oh my. Hush, little blue girl, learn to distill the sounds of a dying empire. Be like the fungi, crosstalk below ground. Get good with being muddy. Embrace soil. Grow wild. Love that. In that poem, I was just thinking about a lot of stuff. You know, um, there's this amazing scholar who also writes poetry, but you wouldn't know it, but he writes exquisite poetry, Kevin Quashi, and he has uh, this book called The Sovereignty of Quiet. And I've been thinking about that book for many, many years. And he talks about the processes of accessing an interior space, what it means to turn inward, to move inward into yourself and to reckon with all of the unruliness that is inside of you and how that is a place of, a repository of power for specifically uh, Black women in this world, right? Mm-hmm. That 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 process of moving inward can fortify oneself. And so, in this poem, I was thinking about the precarity of life for little blue girls who are trying to bloom, uh, and what it would look like to embrace interiority in a collective way. Like I was thinking about fungi, they're, they're amazing mushrooms and <laughs> the way that they grow and how they communicate and how yes. they form these networks that are almost impenetrable to destroy and they're all subterranean. And yeah, I was thinking, I, thinking about so much, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, this age that we live in, this, this digital hyper public hyper accessible age where especially little blue girls who are growing up and don't quite know themselves yet right who are coming to learn themselves have to mediate a public image of themselves Mm -hmm. that can be so confusing and 
Yeah, I think that there's power in not posting everything. I think that there's power in subterranean communication. I think that a revolution Mm -hmm. can occur from this kind of underground networking. Uh, Yeah, and this poem is thinking about God. Yeah. I love all of that so much. Sequoia, your students are so lucky to have you. (laughs) So lucky. I was just going to say, I feel like that interiority is something that, you know, you're a poet through and through, Sequoia, because that's that's what poets gravitate toward, even though there is this exterior component of the poem and even performance of the poem for some poets. You're talking about little blue girls, and I, I think of that interiority for them. Um, or for any person who's experiencing oppression in this country based on their exterior appearance, that that interiority is something that gets abused and cut off in so many ways, intentionally or unintentionally, and that the sole focus becomes about this exterior cultural self. And while obviously your basic needs being met and your basic humanity being... um, respected and cared for are priority number one, that interiority being lost is such a tragedy because it is so essential to being human. <laughs> um, so I, I just wanted to say I really appreciated that that element in this work, not just in Hush Little Blue Girl, but in this whole collection, even as it engages with cultural figures and celebrities and icons, that somehow it also tunnels inward at the same time and that's just super powerful that's incredible because it was the intention of the work but you don't know if it always hits that way Mm -hmm. sequoia something that excites me about just you and your work in general is that you you're like a poet and obviously that you write poetry and that you you just are you move about the world in the way that a poet does but it is not just like the one thing that you offer the world. You're so many, um, you're an educator. You don't have an MFA in poetry. Wait, Um, Anar, before you move on, I just have to say, you even saying that you are a a poet, you embody it, you move through the world as a poet means the world to me. Because I think that as a young girl, I understood myself as a poet and it was Mm -hmm. unquestionable. You know, I I didn't journal. I didn't keep a diary, but I wrote song lyrics, tons and tons of songs. I was a little Mm -hmm. girl who always had headphones on. I was transcribing (laughs) lyrics. I was writing my own music. And eventually I started to write poems. But, you know, as I directed my eye towards professoring and entered graduate school and started training to become an African-American scholar, I was constantly advised that I had to choose a lane, that I had to either be a scholar or be a poet, right? In order to graduate, I had to take a certain number of classes and I was always denied from the poetry workshops, right? So as you stated, I don't have an MFA, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not a part of these large poetry organizations. Mm -hmm. I read a ton of poetry, right? I perform a ton of poetry. I write poems for myself, but so often I think I have to remind myself that I have always been a poet and am a poet first through and through, as you said, right? Even if it's not always um, seen or known. So thank Mm -hmm. you for that. That means the world. Yes. Claire and I have just daily conversations about 
what poetry is and who is a poet and who gets to claim that title. And so it's something that we love to explore and witness in other people. And we really believe that like poetry is, it's a component of the soul. And there's many poets out in the world that never put a pencil to paper, but they are artists and poets and make great art um, that isn't published or lands on the page. Um, But what's thrilling about your work and reading your manuscript for the first time was that you like broke so many rules that... (laughs) That poets would never, we saw things on the page that it would never occur to someone who's been mentored or, you know, picked the poet lane. Um, And so much of that has to do with like your scholarly background. And um, we have a QR code in your book because you were like, yeah, this, we don't want it to take up space. This is a long poem. Um, This can exist in a different medium. And so you take these risks that are thrilling and I believe poets should be punks and take (laughs) risks all the time and see what lands and what works and what doesn't. And your book is just, it varies in so many different exciting and thrilling ways. And I'm sure Claire, as our poetry editor, as our senior editor, had just a blast um, helping you really just get everything perfect. And this is a perfect book. It's a perfect book. Um, <laughs> oh my book. gosh, um, <laughs> I think I consider myself, well, I know I consider myself in a tradition of experimental poets. Yes. I look to people like Evie Shockley and Douglas Kearney and Tahimba Jess, you know, those mm. are my load stars uh, in poetry. And If I break rules, it's probably because I don't know them or because I tried them and got frustrated and decided to create my own rules. Um, That happens a lot. So for instance, I have um, (laughs) uh, have a poem in here that is technically started as a duplex, right? So Mm -hmm. the invented form by Jericho Brown in his book, The Tradition. Mm -hmm. He, you know, makes this form that is so beautiful. It turns around couplets. It's kind of like a sonnet, but it also has the blues. It's just a gorgeous form that I'm obsessed with. And I tried my hand at the duplex, kept trying, kept trying, kept trying. And what I have is like now a remix duplex. So that happens to me all the time. There's another another poem in here called um, On Coming Out at 17. Actually, that poem started as a villanelle and I kept failing and failing and failing. But the fragments that was left, I was like, oh, this is the poem. And I don't know what it's called, but this is the poem. It has a form, but it's a new form. You know? Yeah. I love that, that the whole writing process of just because you've written all this other stuff and we're going for something different to begin with doesn't mean that that's where the poem is. And being able to recognize where the poem actually is, that's what makes you a poet. (laughs) Not being able to write a villanelle. Yeah. And I think if you're not breaking conventions, then you're not writing experimental poetry I won't say you're not writing poetry but you're not writing experimental poetry and part of breaking conventions is trying the convention to Mm. begin with so I love that kind of process between form and breaking form just because you're experimental doesn't mean you're not thinking about form and it's not like the first thing you're thinking about even it just is something that you're resisting and obviously there's like a larger conversation there with like 
resistance and overculture and structures of power. So we don't have to get into all of that, but I just feel like there's a there's a marriage there that um, is very palpable in your work. Totally. And that tension, I love the way that you describe that, right? That maybe form is not foremost, but the tension is there and the attention to it is there. And for me, the poem is not done until there is a form that contains the feeling and the mood and the intention. And I don't know how to describe it, but it just has to click for me. And it might Mm -hmm. be an extra tab. It might be extra breath between spaces. It might be a different kind of enjambment. And I don't know until I see it and play around with it and see it on the page and also speak it, right? I have to speak it. It has to work in both places at once. And for the first time, every single poem in this book clicks for me. Mm -hmm. So when Anar says a perfect book, I'm like, "Ah, I don't want to call anything perfect, but everything has like clicked into place. And that is a, a feeling I've never felt before. It's beautiful. I'm thinking about jazz now. And we talked about jazz albums as the inspiration for the cover art, but also I feel like that whole process you've just described feels very much like jazz to me where you don't know where the notes are headed exactly. I assume the musicians don't know exactly where they're headed as they travel there, but as they go, they know that it's right. And then that's what propels you forward. Yes. And it's about a mood. It's about feeling. And the thing about jazz, it's the perfect metaphor because yes, you know, there has to be the space for improvisation, for making something new, for stumbling into something unexpected, but also in jazz, you know, there's always that refrain. You always Mm -hmm. come back to the center, right? Even as the saxophonist goes off and has his solo and then, you know, the drummer has his solo, but you come back to this place of, of cohesion and recognition, Mm -hmm. um, You never spiral too far from a center, right? That's right. I was just going to say, like, hearing you talk about um, all of these different moving pieces, um, early on when reading your manuscript, you know, I mentioned to you, like, I don't think poetry is your only or your final form. Um, We know without a doubt there's probably some sort of musical component that you're going to work on or... I feel like you're a playwright um, or a filmmaker because mm-hmm. there's so many different elements. Um, what's exciting, though, about a poetry book and this poetry collection is that you can feel all of these elements coming together and flying off of the page when you're reading it. Um, and I'm just like, oh, man, I want to watch, you know, Tangle of Pathology is is a play. Like, it's a performance. Um, and so... So many of your pieces do that. Um, and we have the loophole of retreat, which is an image, an image that, that, you know, it's just, it's so unconventional and exciting and thrilling. And yeah, um, we're pretty sure you're genius. Uh, <laughs> you just exist on so many different planes and it's really exciting. I have so much to say in response to that. Thank you for recognizing it. You know, I grew up in musical theater. I, you know, danced. Mm for my whole life, all the way through college. I would actually love to get back into dance classes now. It's a hobby that I want to pick back up. Mm -hmm. Um, 
if someone had told me when I was a young girl that it's possible for me to have a career as a songwriter, that's probably what I would be doing. I didn't know that people actually did that for a living. <laughs> and I've always seen myself as multimodal, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Along with dancing, uh, I play multiple instruments, I play the piano, I play the classical guitar. I want to pick up a new instrument soon. And I... I've never wanted to limit myself to one plane and all of Mm -hmm. it informs whatever comes out of me, whatever artistic production that I'm making. Thank you for saying playwright. I never even thought about that for myself, but you're right. The Tangle of Pathology. So let me tell, tell the listeners about this poem. Yes. Tangle of Pathology. This is a poem with a QR code. And it's a poem in which I was trying to understand white supremacist violence. And um, I took a very close look at Dylan Roof. And it's a it's a poem. It has three voices, the voice of Dylan Roof, the voice of his mother and the voice of his father. You can read those voices independently, but then you can also read them together. You can read them down the page. You can also read them across the page. And you're right in that that poem That poem is really tremendous. And whenever I return to it, I'm like, I don't even know where to start. Um, Mm. It's a long poem, right? I think each voice has around 70 lines. It's a poem that's rooted in research, as basically all of my poems are. (laughs) You were talking about the scholar in me, right? It always starts from this place of um, just inquiry and curiosity and archival research. And I was trying to find everything that I could about Dylan Roof, how he was raised, uh, his outlook on the world, how something like this might happen, how and why. And it was a scary poem for me. Mm -hmm. I think at the time I gave myself the permission to speak in the voice of a white supremacist, which is not something that I ever thought that my poems would do, but I had to, Mm -hmm. I had to, to try, to try to occupy that mind state and that voice. Um, And it was like trying on a disgusting skin, you know? Um, I think about Patricia Smith's, I don't know if you've ever seen her Def Jam performance of Skinhead, where she speaks as um, a skinhead. It's very powerful. I've read it on the page only. Have to see her live performance. Yeah, because as I started writing this, I actually backed away and I was like, oh, nope, that's dangerous. That's scary. That's threatening. And I also don't know I I was also thinking this might be violent. I don't even know if this is the kind of poetry that I want to produce in the world. Is it actually giving us something? Is this something that we need at the moment? So I really had to write myself through it. But I'll just say I decided on a QR code because uh, I didn't want this exploration of white male violence to be the center point. Mm -hmm. And it's such a long poem that I think that it might have been it might have drowned out some other voices. And Dylan Roof just doesn't get to take up that much space in my work. Um, and I have the power to do that. So it's a way of just, dis- you know, diminishing and displacing. Yeah. It's him. literally in a different space. Yeah. <laughs> the poem exists and you created it. And it is is super compelling and a fascinating read. And also of a a completely different voice than the other poems in Little Girl Blue. And so it makes total sense that it has been sort of confined or um, redirected somewhere else. But yeah, I mean, 
who gets to grant us permission to write certain things, you know? And I feel like you wrestling with the discomfort of writing that poem and yet feeling the compulsion to explore that <laughs> is all the permission that you need in that you were not just doing it blindly without taking into consideration the, the ramifications of a reader reading that poem. Um yeah, I'm not the person that gets to grant that permission, but you totally get to write that poem and it totally gets to exist and be a really important part of this collection. But I agree. I think that um, putting it in the penalty box <laughs> is kind of what we did. Uh, and that felt right. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, after seeing this uh, boy arrested and given a hamburger from uh, Burger King, I was like, yeah, there's no way that he can have any sort of freedom or, you know, uh, any yeah. sort of freedom in my book. <laughs> a very different type of arrest than some of the other arrests that are covered in the poems in your book. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Which speaks volumes. I mean, again, just the contrast there is massively powerful. And it was very important to me to sort of redirect the gaze or reframe the narrative. You know, I actually think that this started out as a poem trying to honor the victims, the nine deaths of the shooting. Mm -hmm. And many of my poems do that, these kind of elegiac poems uh, that try to honor the life that was. But in this poem, you know, I don't think that we were having the right conversations in the aftermath of this, in the wake of this. This was a chance for us as a nation to really explore our deep-seated white supremacist structures, right, that inform mm -hmm. our, our, our consciousness. And, um, we failed to do that as, as a nation. Oh, where do we go from Dylan? Root? Know. You know, it's, that's why he's in the penalty boxes. Cause it is just a heavy, at the end of that poem, it's, it's a heavy sigh. Mm -hmm. And I will also say last thing about that yeah. poem, I would actually say that the hardest voice for me in that poem was his mother. I used mm -hmm. um, Dylan Roof's manifesto for most of the language for his voice for his father, from the information that I could find about him, I felt like he was pretty easy to animate, like, oh, I knew that guy. But the mother, the mother is where I wanted to draw attention to. First of all, there's not much out there about her anywhere. Um, there's a lot of silence around her role, her raising Dylan mm -hmm. Roof, her complicity, uh, her knowledge of the guns, uh, her knowledge of his alienation over time. But I really wanted to point to, I, I really wanted to think about her role as a white woman raising a young white man in this country and being so aligned with various violences that were happening in her life that none of it was a red flag. I don't know how to describe this, but you'll see in the poem that she, you know, she just has some experience with, you know, um, male dominance in her life. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's some suggestions of abuse and um, many things that were in retrospect and hindsight obvious. And, you know, I think in the moment kind of explained away as just boys will be boys. This is just what men do, you know, and I yeah. wanted to really look at that rhetoric. Sequoia, that is so much 
to put on your mind and in your body um, these three just extremely toxic voices. Um, so this summer, you did the last batch of edits on that poem. Um, how did you cleanse yourself from these voices? That's a good question. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of times writing these poems, it puts me in a funk, mm-hmm. puts me in a funky mood. My husband will tell you he can, <laughs> you know, he knows when I'm working on something that is troubling. And unfortunately, most of my poetry is troubling. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's all I think it was all about getting back into nature, kayaking, mm-hmm. hiking, unplugging from all things digital, no news, you know, being mm-hmm. very um just aware of how much I was taking in and cultivating a kind of stillness and quiet around me that allows me to get back to myself, you know, Mm -hmm. get back to my body, um, to, to let myself know that the world is still rotating on its axis, even Mm -hmm. if I have, you know, gone to a really dark place in in my mind, Mm -hmm. that there's still this kind of like outward beauty that I can tap into, but the stillness, the quiet, so important for me. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of going back to that book you were talking about, The Sovereignty of Quiet. I'm very intrigued by that. Highly recommend. I always make a reading list after talking to you, Sequoia. <laughs> I kept saying during the process of editing that I was taking your class this semester because <laughs> um, that's truly how it felt and it was wonderful. Well, I loved working with you because we talk about something, I'd recommend something, and then you'd go get it from the library and read it. Like, come <laughs> yeah. on. Totally. <laughs> it might be circling back a little bit, but we keep talking about how you're a scholar as well as a poet. And I know that, um, you know, one of your other publications is revisiting the elegy in the Black Lives Matter era which combines scholarship and poetry in a really beautiful way. And I was just curious to hear your thoughts on how scholarship plays a role in your own personal poetic practice. I know that it does. Um, Yeah, it plays a huge role. And I've kind of noticed for me that the the two go hand in hand. I think what is what I can't say in scholarship or what I can't get to, or when I'm trying to work out a problem, those kind of unanswerable things Mm -hmm. I turn to in poetry. So almost every poem that I have can be paired with some kind of critical scholarship that I'm working on. Uh, For instance, there's a poem called When Bodies of Water Exhale. And uh, that poem is thinking about flood and natural disaster and regeneration after disaster. And it came while I was working on an essay about Beyonce's Lemonade. And Beyonce's Mm -hmm. Lemonade is, you know, heavily invested in thinking about the space of New Orleans and Mm -hmm. growth after Hurricane Katrina and growth after, you know, governmental mismanagement and disaster. So I don't know, there, there are times when you can only be so poetic and experimental in your language in a critical essay, whereas the poem just lets me explore and go, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, so often when I finish an essay, I feel like I have more to say. And usually the poem is the more Mm -hmm. to say. That's beautiful. Do you feel like scholarship is what generally ignites your poetic impulse? I think so. I mean, I'm really invested in scholarship and scholarship for me is, is broad. It's not a narrow conception of scholarship. So 
you know, I think that there are musicians who are producing scholarship. I think Mm -hmm. that there are novelists, you know, for me, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, you know, I have the epigraph that opens this book is from that text. That's a work of theory for me. That's a novel that explains that, that works through, that theorizes, you know, survival, that theorizes what that might look like um, in this country. And uh, also, you know, I mentioned earlier on that the work is highly citational, highly Mm -hmm. citational. There are epigraphs, there are allusions to, there are quotes included by a range of artists, Christina Sharp, Ralph Ellison, Toni Morrison, Jimmy Baldwin. Um, We can talk about the celebrities, Muhammad Ali, Mm -hmm. Prince, Tupac, right? There's a populating of, of voices through this citational practice that is really important for me. And I think that's also a way of writing myself into a tradition, right? Of saying, I am nothing without what has come before. So much of it is a honoring of ancestors that made it possible for me to do this exploratory, experimental work mm-hmm. that I love. So, you know? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's like you're creating something. I'm sorry, we're just metaphors are all over the place today, but it's like you're creating something completely new, but out of threads that were pulled from other pieces, kind of like how you were talking about even just the title of the manuscript, Little Girl Blue, as this refrain or this the standard that has been passed down in, in kind of a lineage um, and reshaped as it goes. Um, I feel like you should compile a reading list for folks on our blog to pair with your book. Um, that would be a really beautiful pairing to have like a further reading list, even for a poetry chat book that's only, what, 25 pages long. That reading list would be pretty massive. Um, in addition to the playlist, which of course we are very much looking forward to because music plays such a role. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> but yes, for anyone who's listening, I think just off the top of my head, you know, I've already named Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Uh, I'm going to put Beyonce's Lemonade in there as a text. Uh, yes, it is a text. Yes. yes. And there's actually like a script available and you can mm-hmm. see that she incorporates poetry. Really beautiful. I would mention Christina Sharp's In the Wake. Um, I would also say Harriet Jacobs' Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, for sure, Uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved, and Lucille Clifton's Collected Poems. Oh my god, that's perfect. What a beautiful list. I read Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl when we were doing the edits for your work, and I am so grateful for your poem, Loophole of Retreat, which led me to that text. And I had never read it. I felt like I had heard a version of the story at some point, but reading it was a completely different experience. And I have to say, I don't know when that is supposed to be taught uh, at what age group, but I feel like everyone who didn't, like I did not encounter it in my schooling, I feel like everyone should um, consider that required reading. Agreed. I think it's a fundamental text for anyone who's an individual alive and capable of reading today. Harriet Jacobs, you know, normally when people are introduced to it, unfortunately, it's usually at a college level, which Mm -hmm. we know so many people don't have access to. And it's also usually in a class like Introduction to African American Studies. Now, 
recently it's beginning to be taught more in high school settings as um, paired alongside uh, Frederick Douglass's narrative. So usually for high schoolers who are learning about enslavement, Frederick Douglass has been the go-to slave narrative, right? To think about fugitivity and the kind of um, the kind of text that you know kind of catalyzed abolition in that era. But Harriet Jacobs, what she gives us is so significant, so important. <sighs> okay, so now I'm like, okay, I will try not to make it too much like a classroom, but I'll tell you a little bit about Do it. <laughs> We're here to learn. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm like, where to start? The story itself, Harriet Ann Jacobs, she writes her own memoir, and it's about her escape to freedom. She is living as an enslaved girl in North Carolina uh, right before the Civil War. And the story really begins around the age of 15. Harriet is coming into her womanhood and her master Dr. James Norcom, he is a physician. He's also a powerful politician. He begins making lecherous advances towards her. And she knows that her virginity, her bodily autonomy is at risk, is threatened. And Harriet eventually falls in love. Uh, She has uh, two children. And yet her master is increasingly violent. and. She has to make a decision and she decides that she needs to escape north, but she also needs to watch out for the safety of her children. And I won't spoil the whole plot because I need everyone who is listening to go out and read this remarkable Mm -hmm. true story, true story. Harriet Jacob absconds herself. She hides herself for seven years in the small garret space of her grandmother's house as a way to outmaneuver her master and eventually secure her freedom. And I mean, it's an incredible act to think about. Can you imagine? Hmm. I don't think any of us can imagine. Uh, Stowing away in this kind of no space, right? This like extremely small, tight, cramped, you know, hot air, can't breathe, dusty, no breathing holes, no room to to move for seven years, Mm -hmm. right? Making that sacrifice. And she eventually does get to New York and gain her freedom. And her her life story is incredible. Um, There's a scholar, her name's uh, Jane Fagan Yellen. She was a grad scholar and she went into the archives and she discovered, um, you know, Harriet Jacobs' unpublished papers and is responsible for bringing this true story, this narrative to the public. And the narrative, it ends with Harriet Jacobs' freedom, but it's a freedom that's not even really a freedom, right? She's she's a domestic worker for a white woman in the North. She doesn't actually seem very happy, you know, um, her, one of her sons becomes a public lecturer alongside Frederick Douglass. Her daughter, Louisa, who she loves so sweetly, she becomes an educator. And what's incredible is that outside of the narrative, the narrative ends with Harriet Jacob as a domestic worker. 
scholars have uncovered that Harriet Jacobs had an incredible afterlife. So even though physically she had many, you know, sort of physical ailments from staying in that Garrett space for seven years, she had respiratory problems, she had back problems, she was hunched over, right, alignment problems with her spine. Even though she opened a school for Black folks to get education, and she worked alongside her daughter, Louisa, and they're responsible for educating um, hundreds of Black individuals of all ages. And Mm. what I also find incredible is that Harriet Jacobs knew that she had an important story, and she got to a place in her life where she was no longer afraid to tell that story. And she reached out to Harriet Beecher Stowe, right? And she said, will you write this for me, right? Can I tell you my story and you write this for me? And Harriet Beecher Stowe didn't want to touch it. She was like, no, actually, I don't want to do this. And eventually, Harriet Jacobs came to the conclusion. She said, okay, I need to do this for myself. And this beautiful writing, it, I mean, Claire, yes. you testify, right? Like well, the was, writing is exquisite. That's the main thing I would <laughs> say about it is that you don't feel like there's any editorializing in the story. There's just this stark vulnerability where she's even questioning herself in moments in the narrative, sort of explaining her actions, which were, especially from our perspective now, we're just like, yeah, well, hell yes, you did that. Of course you did. But she's obviously still in that time and explaining why she did what she did and sort of trying to defend her morality. And that is, it's so heartbreaking to read in her own words. Um, Someone else writing that wouldn't probably have taken it to those places. And um, I feel like you get, coming back to interiority, you get a really strong sense of the psychology not to make it sound clinical, you know, but the psyche of of a person who has been through what she yes. what she went through. And yeah, how important it is that that's in her own words is mm-hmm. it's too too vast to even qualify. Mm-hmm. And and I think about how close we were to not having her story, to never knowing she existed, right? I think about the scholars who painstakingly uncovered her work and made sure that it was published, right? And I owe everything to women like Harriet Jacobs, who had the strength within themselves after securing their freedom to then testify to it. (sighs) Come on now. And it, the way that is expressed in the poem that you've created, I mean, Anar, you can talk more about how that looks on the page and how the two of you worked together to to bring that visual image forth of the loophole of retreat. Yeah, Sequoia, the loophole of retreat, as everybody listening is going to discover, is an experimental, it's an image poem, and I, it, it's almost like it's a collaboration between you and Harriet. That's fun. You've got her words from her book and yours coming together to make this image. And I remember we were reading your manuscript. There's some poems in there that we looked at them and we're like, how can we do justice to these poems? And the loophole Mm -hmm. of retreat, we were like, we absolutely need to include this work of art um, but can we do it justice? And that was that was a conversation that we had and we're like, can we accept this manuscript 
and everything that it has to offer and feel good about what we offer you. And, you know, we, we did, we, we've done it. And yeah, and that was a poem that just, it's at the center of the book. It's important. And it's your voice and Harriet's voice coming together to show us what's happened. Um, how did you conceive of making this this poem? Um, no, <laughs> I have no, I honestly, I don't know. I cannot remember. There are a couple poems in this book. I will say the loophole of retreat. Um, the, upon reading the autopsy of Sandra Bland, which also feels like a communion with Sandra in many ways, mm. those poems came like out of trance states. And I can't say much about their development. They just mm-hmm. are. They just mm-hmm. are. What I will say is that I was teaching Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl in this amazing class. It was a Black women writers at work. I had a beautiful um, classroom full of feminist identified women who were discovering this work for the first time. And we had just heartbreaking and glorious conversations about the gift that Harriet Jacobs had given to us. And I produced this poem. So this image-based poem is actually dedicated to my students. I'm so grateful for them for being in conversation with them because they propelled this process. (laughs) They propelled all of this. And I will say, Anar, you know, there's an early version of this poem that exists at Auburn Avenue uh, that was published early. But then you and I started working together and this poem is completely different now. And I won't spoil it too much, you know, you got to kind of open the book and see it, but there's something happening. For me, this image is not stagnant. It is a moving image that continues to speak beyond the page, if that makes sense, right? It's an image of a house and there are words on this house and within the house, but there's also a kind of smoke that is rising and, you know, gesturing beyond the page and beyond the book. And I'm just really grateful in our, like our collaboration on this poem in particular, I think is just, it's astounding. Yeah. That's definitely a favorite memory that I'm going to carry with me is discovering that you can do screen share on Zoom and then just being like, okay, Sequoia, we're going to hammer this out. We're going to make it into what you need it to be. And I still vote for teaching you Adobe Illustrator and InDesign because I feel like you need every tool to like truly just make every art that I could tell is in you. Um, but Anar, you are downplaying your role because Anar, which you're not <laughs> telling the listener is that I wasn't actually able to articulate what I wanted every time. But Anar was like, no, I'm feeling this. And I think what you want is for, you know, the smoke to rise like this and to move. And, you know, and I'm like, yes, Anar, that is it. That is it. So Anar, Anar is really the one that tapped into my intention and was able to visualize that for me when I had no words to speak it. You know, you recognized it. Yeah. And, um, and I'm sure Claire would totally agree with me in that, like, we have had so much fun working with you and making this book. Um, I mean, there's so many people in this book and Sequoia, you are the vessel and you are the soul that moves through all of these different voices. But like, we also kind of feel like there's like little tiny, tiny bits of us 
sprinkled throughout. And I think that's really fun and really special. And, you know, when publishing was a little twinkle in my eye a decade ago, I never thought that this is what it would be like. Um, And we're just so lucky. Oh, my God. Unbelievably lucky, Sequoia. I meant to say this at the very top, but working with you is what makes our job not just fun, but like the dream. You know, it's it's the dream because of you and working with your poems. Um, It's a huge privilege. We're lucky. Speaking of publication, tell us about your grandfather. We, we need to hear at least an anecdote oh about gosh. Grandpa Maynard. I don't know what you called him. <laughs> yes. Uh, his name is Johnson Maynard. Johnson Maynard was an amazing man. He lived until he was 97. He just passed away a couple of years ago oh and his God. life was incredible. You know, he always wanted to be a professor of black history. And that never happened for him. But I was so glad that he got to see me get my PhD because he was just so astonishingly proud. And I loved him. We Even in his late years, he never lost his mind. So we have amazing conversations about all that he has seen. And he was, you know, he grew up in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And when he was a little boy, he could remember stories of people talking about Sherman coming through South Carolina and burning down the fields, you know? So his memory was so long, even beyond himself, right? He had hundreds of years of history and stories Mm. inside of him. Incredible man. Well, after the Navy, he met my grandmother uh, in Los Angeles and they started their little life. My grandmother worked at the phone company, which is an amazing job at the time, considering, you know, that most Black women either worked as domestics or um, just very limited jobs. Her job at the phone company was amazing. She worked at Pacific Bell and retired there, right? Well, my grandfather, he started a printing press first in his garage. And this was incredible because at the time there were no black printing presses and the industry itself was highly segregated. Mm -hmm. And the few black printers that had tried to start to try to start businesses in Southern California were stamped out very easily. But my grandfather, he persevered and he moved from, you know, one machine in his garage to two machines in his garage. And he eventually opened Maynard Printing Press. He had his own building in uh, South Central L.A. that was there uh, for many, many years up until about five years ago when it closed. And he was responsible for getting the materials out for any Black person who was doing something in Southern California. Mm. So politicians, celebrities, entertainers, musicians, he worked with them all. And it was incredible. I remember at his funeral a couple of years ago, folks were just writing in and writing in. We actually didn't have time to read them all, writing in Mm. about their memories of being able to come to my grandfather's press and do the important work that they needed to do because he existed. So he really carved a lane. And the other thing about my grandfather is that he 
always invested in, in his community. So the folks who worked at his shop were not just his sons, but also just Black boys in the neighborhood who he wanted to give skills, who he taught and yeah. mentored. So his kind of expertise trickled out and had an, an impact on the community. So in some ways, I kind of felt like, uh, feel like I meant to do this thing, you know? <laughs> I will also tell you that my name, Sequoia, it took me a very long time to come into the power of my name. I actually have a poem in this collection called How I Came to Remember My Name. And it's about coming to embrace and um, acknowledge the power of, of the name Sequoia. But the name itself is Cherokee. And Sequoia was the first transcriber of the Cherokee language, right? And Sequoia was a poet himself. Sequoia, you know, means writer. Oh my God. <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah. And your grandfather's story is just amazing. It's so cool. But what's really cool is to hear about all of those different elements of him are part of you and part of this book that lineage is so direct um not just the printing part of it right but how he wanted to be a professor of black history as well and even just the engagement with celebrities and political figures which all sort of <laughs> sifts through this manuscript as well that's just amazing <laughs> oh thank you for sharing that well and it's really only recently that i've started to think about I don't know if, yeah, we've been using that word destined, but, but I've been thinking about, you know, fate and how I got here. And, you know, I'm going to bring up Monica's name again, because I took a workshop with her last summer and it was about letter writing. And um, I started writing these letters and then the letters turned into a kind of memoir. And mm -hmm. I've been just writing about my history and writing about who I am and the people who made me. And um, all of this to so, say, it's only relatively recently that I have been so kind of obsessed with my own personal narrative and genealogy, right? Yeah. So maybe it's always been in the poems, but I feel like I'm just coming to recognize <sighs> it. Yeah, it's just destined. We're made of all of these specific things and it feels like you're making discoveries and it feels like chaos and then there's this moment where you realize oh no this is all synchronicity <laughs> I didn't know until this conversation that you were also a musician which makes total sense because there are so many musicians in your poems but also so much musicality mm -hmm. so Sequoia will you talk to us about your relationship to music and how you feel that interacting with your poetic process Yes. You know, music is just a part of me <laughs> and I'm a part of it. Like quite literally, I am the person who is always walking around with headphones. I, I'm lost for words because music is so central to my life. I'm an auditory person. You know, I, I just started realizing that Perhaps my introduction to music was quite advanced compared to other folks I know. And I think that growing up in Los Angeles had a lot to do with it. Yeah. So, you know, lately I've been thinking about, you know, the death of Tupac. That happened when I was nine years old, but it affected mm. me so greatly. And so many people I know who are of my age weren't even listening to Tupac at the time, but I was listening to Tupac. 
which is strange, which is strange. It's a strange thing, right? Like I think about how my mom created no limits for me. She really trusted me. She knew that music was a thing that was significant and important to me, right? So she didn't um, censor me in any way. Uh, I was also kind of the baby of the family. So my foster sister, for instance, is 10 years older than me. When I was seven, she was 17. And what she was listening to, I was listening to. And I wanted to be just like her. Quite literally, we wore matching outfits, right? That tells you how much I wanted to be like her. So if she was listening, you know, to Mary J. Blige and Tupac and Aaliyah, that's what I was also listening to. Um, And then, you know, I had a ton of older cousins. One of my cousins was a producer and he would slip me music. Mm, Um, That's so cool. (laughs) Yeah, very, very, very early on. Like I was a crate digger at 10 years old, 11 years old. That's what I was doing. And I, I really started you know, exploring. So my mom, she listened to soul and gospel. Mm-hmm. All of my cousins and family, they listened to hip hop and R&B. Myself, I started venturing into folk music and heavy metal and um, classic rock. And I still have a deep love for all of those things. And in many ways, I felt myself as a kind of outsider. You know, people didn't understand this Black girl who was going to Metallica concert. You know, my first concert was Slayer and Pantera. I was only 12 years old. Like, this is oh the my person God. I was. This is the person <laughs> I was, an M, you know? And it's only now dawning on me at, like, how weird that is. How weird that is. My mom dropping me off at, you know, OzFest to see Ozzy Osbourne oh at 13, God. right? But that that's just who I was. Mm-hmm. And um, I live for live music. I live for concerts. I was very blessed to see Prince before he passed away. I've seen Prince live four times. And Prince is, Prince is someone who shows up in this book. I have um, a poem titled The Day Prince Died. And that poem is one of the newer poems in the book. I really have just started to process his death, um, which you know, is kind of like monumental and kind of unthinkable still for me at this time. But Prince in particular, he was someone who who guided me through my adolescence, through music and through his performances. He taught me so much about bodily autonomy, about Mm -hmm. sexual fluidity, about embracing one's um, weirdness and strangeness. He taught me that, you know, what's sexy is also sacred and what's sacred is sexy and that there is no difference between those things. Um, Yeah, he taught me about funk and syncopation and the possibility that opens up in that space, right? In the break, like he just taught me so much. Um, I forgot where I was going with that, but yeah, music, music is all. (laughs) I mean, music is something that you get caught up in. And um, I love the Prince poem, by the way, Mm -hmm. it's one of my favorite poems, but that current that runs through it of, like you said, the bodily autonomy and sexual fluidity go hand in hand in that poem with this kind of intense joy. And I feel like that's a really important companion to the darkness and the elegy in your work. And I really feel that in the musical poems and the Tupac poem even. Exactly. There's a poem, it's a series called Epistle. 
Yes. Those, those poems are dedicated to Tupac. They came, I was writing letters to Tupac. Tupac has always been a central person in my life. And in fact, I am writing critically about him right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2022, I have a book coming out with a 33 and a third series on Kendrick Lamar. And in that book, I talk about Kendrick Lamar as an inheritor of Tupac, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So Tupac is this silhouette who's kind of always haunting both myself and Kendrick, right? So I think about that relationship. And this poem, Epistle, came out as these letters, you know, they start Dear Tupac, Dear Tupac. And for me, he's such a central figure who is understudied and misunderstood. You know, he passed away, he was only 25 years old. Mm -hmm. And in the brief time that he was on this planet, he was so brilliant. You know, he was blazing, he was burning, he was, he was gorgeous of an exquisite mind, you know, he was an inheritor of, of Black power ideology. He connected generations. He had a beautiful way with language, with grabbing mm-hmm. one's attention and, and pointing you directly to the problem, right? And in, in a way that was unflinching. Um, his kind of conviction and his his aptitude for justice was gorgeous but we don't talk about the ways that you know his public performances you know this fine arts trained (laughs) theater school trained man how he kind of lost himself due to the forces of celebrity how our prison system our criminal justice system shaped and altered him and hardened him in many ways. Um, I think so much about how Tupac, unlike any other rapper that has ever existed, you know, manifested his death, Mm. who saw his death coming, who, because he saw his death, knew that he had a very urgent and important job to do in the moment. Yeah, so I think about the ways, you know, and when I say he had an urgent job to do in the moment, like think about the fact that Tupac has released more albums after his death. He has such a Mm -hmm. wide body of music because he was just recording feverishly, right? He had something inside of him that he had to get out. Such a gift for us, such a gift for us. Yeah. So I think about us now, you know, 20 years after his death, 25 years after his death. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think about the kind of disservice we've done to his memory. I think we've kind of flattened his memory in many ways. We've kind of reduced him to a caricature Mm. of gangsterism. Like we really haven't explored the depth of Tupac. Like Tupac was a grassroots organizer. Tupac was literally traveling around the nation, connecting opposing gangs, trying to instill gang truces around the country and trying to build power within disenfranchised Black communities, you know, like, that's a beautiful thing that we don't talk about. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem when we remember him in only a very slim, narrowing way. So that poem, Epistle, thinking about all of that. Yeah, that stuff doesn't get covered in the films. So the complexity, it's like, I want us to remember these heroes, you know, there's so many heroes 
in this text for me, Tupac is one of them, Prince is one of them, Muhammad Ali is another one. And I think in all of those poems, I'm asking, well, what does it mean to embrace these figures in all of their nuance, in all of their complexity, and then move forward from there? Yeah. So which poem would you like to hear? Oh, God. <laughs> I'm going to read I'm going to read part one of Epistle and then I'll close okay. with the day Prince died. How about that? Sounds beautiful. OK, perfect. Epistle opens with a quote from Tupac, which I love from a 1994 interview, which is uh, wide, widely known where he says, I guarantee that I will spark the brain that changes the world. That's our job. Dear Tupac, you are scattered like jazz across these states, a sorrowful note in Baltimore, syncopated bruise in Harlem, gravel mouth moan in Oakland, a mustard seed in Compton. You are always already a thefted body, torso dislodged from neck and its bullet wounds, fingers plucked for preservation, skin flayed, stretch for book binding, golden tongue gifted to rough waters. You are the material evidence of survival, a lifetime of resurrections, a discharge of hauntings, a flashpoint, the roam and wander of post-bop, a brilliant star streaking wild across the sky. You are the ring shout of a radical tradition, a prayer, a self-fulfilling prophecy, a manifestation of the ecstatic, the stuff of elegies and uprisings. You are the sound a ghost makes when it returns to a body. That's part one mm -hmm. of Epistle. Oh there God. are two other parts. Okay, should I close with the day Prince died? Yes, please. I have to say that this this poem is dedicated to my friend Ananias. He is my concert buddy. Uh, we saw Prince together. We've seen many musicians together. And this is kind of um, catalyzed by my memories of us going to shows, to live concerts. Awesome. And this also starts with an epigraph from Prince from his song Dark, where he says, how could you, babe, leave me in the dark? The day Prince died. The day Prince died, she devolved into muteness, returned to stubborn silence, sucked her thumb, curled into herself, lashed out at anyone bold enough to ask, how are you? Wander wondered, danced profusely, returned to a time when her name was Desire, pronounced Desiree, when everything was erotic, when everything was beautiful, strange, and they were faggots, when she fainted before the fourth encore and revived by the finale, when he was ageless and she was agile, they risked it all, leapt with abandon, landed in deep plie, full second, graceful as Alvin Ailey dancers and revolution, revelation. She always landed on her feet, let the music be her guide to getting off proper. She fucked girls, she fucked guys, liked fucking herself most, didn't believe in nasty bodies nor sin, knew her body and what to do, knew the difference between feel right and feel wrong, found a creamy center, said I would die for you, said nothing compares to you, said I want to be your lover, baby, jacked them off before blotting her black lipstick, she married a man, she married a woman, she was always alone, said I don't understand why you have to hurt me, baby, Hurt me in the dark. Oh. 
I love that poem. Sequoia, you read that beautifully, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this work with us and allowing us to share it with the world. And yeah, I could listen to you talk all day, Sequoia. Like I said, I'm taking your class. So (laughs) Um, thank you so much. You guys are incredible. This has been incredible. Thank you, Sequoia. We're on cloud nine. It's been a joy speaking with you and working with you. And there was like two weeks where we were getting the book to the printers and like, you know, our job was done for two weeks, kind of. And I was, I missed you. I was like, we're not constantly messaging Sequoia and this feels weird. Yeah. And I know you're just in the throes. You're teaching and school has started. And thank you so much for making time for us. This is the beautiful work. This is the beautiful part of the work. It doesn't feel like labor. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm so excited to see this little girl blue that we've birthed go out into the world. And I can't even imagine how it's going to be taken up. You know, I, I hope that there will be workshops and syllabi and, and all of the things. So I think that this is just the beginning yes. of what's to come. And yes. that's exciting. Yes.